Podcast. I'm your host Brian. Today with us is Baron. How are you today, sir? Good to be back. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you because I was thinking about this today. Did Did you ever have like a a nickname or did guys call you anything? An active dude. Yeah. For, uh, yeah. Um. Not just in Germany. So when I was a W two W three at uh, Quarter Cav in Schweinfurt. There's a couple of guys there. So I'm of German descent, spoke German. I was always the translator when we went out on the economy to buy stuff for barbecues or getting, you know, beers for a beer bash or something. So I was the, the chosen one to go out and do the away missions. Um, so they called me Herm in uh, in honor of Herman the German. <laughs> Herman the German. Yeah, because we don't do, you know, call signs in, in Army Aviation. Which I, I don't I guess I don't know why. Do you, is there any reason off the top of your head you know why we never did that? No, I, I don't know the short answer is no. I don't know the reason. I can speculate. It's uh you know we're our lineage is from the Army Air Corps and then that obviously split to become the United States Air Force in '47, and then as as Army aviation is a subset of the Army as a whole, and the Army doesn't you know the Army likes to think of its organizations as army so that's where the kind of the culture was squashed a little bit of it um so i think you know where you have the six and the seven we get numerical call signs based on the unit we're associated with or assigned to at the time and i think why that tradition split from the air corps i don't know if they even did that i don't think that's a world war ii thing either so that must have come out um after world war ii because i'm not aware of call signs being used in the navy or the or the Air Corps prior to World War II. So it might have been a culture thing that happened, you know, kind of post-war years. I'm not really sure. But yeah, Yeah. long-winded way of saying I don't know the answer. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's something uh, I'd like to know more about. We'll have to look into that one day. I'd like to figure out where exactly that split happened. I was just thinking about that earlier today. But um, yeah, so today we're going to kind of... I don't want to say reset the clock, but, you know, when we started the show, you know, we, we kind of hit some, some trendy uh, things that were going on, right? So we talked about APKWS because there was a, a push forward in the uh, in the flight sim community. Uh, and in our last episode, you know, with everything going on in Azerbaijan and Armenia, uh, had a lot of UAS, which I was just reading something yesterday, like incredible amount of damage being done by UAS. I don't know if you've seen anything about that. No, not in the most recent conflicts. I do know there was a lot of lessons learned from the Ukraine conflicts where UAS, how the Russians were using their UASs to just decimate Ukrainian formations uh, for our, using artillery strikes. Yeah. Yeah, no, there was there, there's been a lot of stuff going on uh, the past couple of weeks over there. I'll have to find a couple of links. I'll send it to you. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Um, but yeah, so what we'll kind of do is is I want to talk helicopters. Obviously, that's kind of the the theme of of the show in general, not just but but generally speaking, and uh, and just kind of explore why helicopters are different. And I think most people know that on its on its face and understand that you know okay the the wings rotate around the around an axis above the aircraft, but we'll kind of get into sort of the particulars and the aerodynamics and some of the design. 
Uh, but first I want to read this. Uh, we were talking about it before. Uh, this came out in 1977 from a man named Harry Reisner. Uh, from what I remember and understand, he was a reporter that was uh, had spent time in Vietnam and, and flown around in aircraft and all these things. But he wrote this and he says, Helicopter pilots are different. The thing is, helicopters are different from planes. An airplane, by its nature, wants to fly. And it's not interfered with too strongly by unusual events or by a deliberately incompetent pilot. It will fly. A helicopter does not want to fly. It is maintained in the air by a variety of forces and controls working in opposition to each other. And if there is any disturbance in this delicate balance, the helicopter stops flying, immediately and disastrously. There's no such thing as a gliding helicopter. This is why being a helicopter pilot is so different from being an airplane pilot, and why, in general, airplane pilots are open, clear-eyed, buoyant extroverts, and helicopter pilots are brooders, introspective anticipators of trouble. They know if something bad has not happened, it is about to. I remember seeing that when I was in flight school, posted up on somebody's wall, and I, I got a chuckle out of it. And even now, almost 20 years later, it, yeah, it's about right. Yeah, that's one of my favorites, too. Uh, there's another proverb, I guess, that um, helicopters are generally, there are thousands of parts and moving pieces all rotating around each other, just around an oil leak. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. Or that they beat the air in a submission. So That's right. And let's talk about that. So beating the air in a submission. So when we talk about helicopters, and I always used to kind of mess with people and say helicopters and airplanes, too, is just different because the wings uh, just don't stay in one place. But that's actually not true. An air, a helicopter is not an airplane, but it is an aircraft. Um, so the obvious difference, of course, is the the rotation of the, the wings, the main rotor. There are some similarities with, with airplanes. Um, you know, obviously drag and uh, lift coefficients being what they are you you want the the airframe the fuselage to be in you know in such a a fashion to to limit drag um you want to talk a little bit about drag yeah drag is uh, you know in aviation in general there's three things we hate it's weight and drag and um running out of fuel so <laughs> um drag is uh super important to a helicopter and there's a few ways that it manifests itself and I guess we can get into more specifics but there's uh oh gosh now I'm struggling to dig back and I'm uh <laughs> so the three types of drag are form drag parasite shoot parasite yeah and uh induced drag so form drag is kind of set it's it's by nature a resultant of the shape of the airfoil um so there's one drag associated with each particular airfoil design, and that would be the rotor blades. Um, parasite drag is just everything that is strapped to the helicopter. So military helicopters being particularly susceptible, I guess, to this because uh, military services strap so many different pieces of equipment to the outsides of the airframes that parasite drag uh, becomes a, probably the biggest component to limiting um, how fast a mission-equipped helicopter can go. And then there's induced drag, which is a function of how much lift the rotor system is producing. So um, when you are pulling relatively little pitch, in other words, uh, you don't have a whole lot of power applied to the system, um, your induced drag is relatively low. And when you start pulling that collective up into your armpit, your induced drag, as a result of producing more lift, goes way up. So there's a thing called the, the bucket curve, and you'll hear bucket speed used by helicopter pilots quite a bit. 
And if you look at a chart where all those different drags kind of meet at their lowest point, that's bucket speed. And that's the most efficient airspeed a helicopter can be at. And that's what we also call um, your max endurance airspeed. So at that power setting and at that airspeed, you can remain in the air the longest given an amount of fuel because your drags are at their lowest point. And beyond that speed, everything tends to go up. And the closer you get to high speeds, parasite drag and induced drag uh, go up almost logarithmically. So the difference, I'll use a, a KW as an example, um, cruising around at 90 knots in a fully mission configured KW is pretty comfortable, usually around 75% torque or so. Uh, to get from 90 to 100 knots, probably you're pushing from 75% torque to 95 to 100% torque. So to get that extra, we'll call it five to 10 knots of additional airspeed, you're increasing your burn rate by 30 to 40%. Um, so that your, your point of return starts to diminish greatly because you are trying to eke out five more knots for five more knots of, or for a, a radically increased fuel flow. So that's drag in a nutshell. So you said pull pitch or, or you know changing of pitch. So let's talk about what that means. So pull pitch, when you hear us Army guys say that, or I'm sure the Navy and the Air Force guys would say the same thing, usually it's because you're, you're getting ready to pull pitch. So that refers to um, your left hand reaching down to that collective and pulling it up towards your armpit, and that means you are taking off. So, hey, we're pulling pitch at 1,300. Okay, that means we're taking off at 1,300. But what it refers to is um, pulling the collective, which collectively, so the reason it's called a collective versus the cyclic, which is in between your legs, uh, the collective increases and decreases the amount of thrust produced by the rotor system collectively. So when you pull up on that collective lever, there's a component called the, the rotating swash plate and the non-rotating swash plate. So when you pull the collective up through the servos and all the control linkages that go up to the swash plates, um, they collectively move the pitch control rods on each of the rotor blades at the same rate at the same time. So they all go up or go down. So that's how you increase the, the collective thrust of the entire rotor system. So if you were to touch no other control, let's, well, let, in theory, um, we're not gonna talk about torque and anti-torque quite yet, but let's say you had a perfect system where you pull up on the collective uh, you would go straight up if you did nothing else. Now, there's anti-torque, and we'll get into that as well. But Or we'll use the K50 as an example, where you have two counter-rotating rotors that equal each other out. When you pull collective or pull pitch, you go up. And then we need to talk about cyclic pitch as well. Right. So what we're talking about is the fact that the blades themselves actually rotate. And in a way, I always pictured it in my head. You know, you think about air as a fluid um you know i think about standing in a pool right and you stick your arms out and you've got your hands flat in the water if you spin your your hand is going to kind of slice through the water but as you rotate your wrist and and change the pitch of your hand in the water and now you're you know you're creating more of a surface area that's that's running against the water uh you know that's essentially what we're doing in the air with the rotor blade at least that's how i always kind of picture it yeah and so maybe we should we should back up a little bit too. So I think the first thing to note is that people should understand that each rotor is an airfoil. Um, and to 
produce. So an airfoil works with through Bernoulli's principle by having low pressure and high pressure areas around the airfoil due to the movement of air over the surfaces. Hmm. So the way an airplane flies is they, they get that airflow velocity over the wing by having an engine that produces thrust that moves it through the air forward. Right. Well, a helicopter wings or the rotors are rotating and that's how the um, air velocity is produced through which the airfoil will work, produce the high and low pressure areas and thereby produce lift. Exactly. So what we're kind of going back to your example, if all other things being equal, we are causing the wings to, to rotate around and create the speed that would equal what an airplane does when it puts its, you know, thrust forward, when it, when it increases its power and it's, you know, essentially driving down the runway, uh, which is then causing air to flow over the wings. It's going to create that Bernoulli's principle like you talked about, and that's going to cause lift. What we're doing is instead of moving the aircraft down the runway, we're just going to move the wings around a bunch and get them to the proper speed, uh, which is also going to create the Bernoulli principle. And so as you're saying it, when we when we collectively change the pitch of all the rotor blades, we're going to create that lift, and with all other forces being equal, the aircraft is going to then you know go up because of the lift. But as you said, not everything is equal, right? So we are going to have a challenge. What is the number one challenge that comes from increasing the collective? We should talk about Newton's three laws, right? So uh, applies to all objects, but aircraft in particular. So Newton has three laws, inertia, acceleration, and action and reaction. So uh, you can go look them up. Maybe we don't get into them here, but uh, the action reaction is the one we're talking about here. So through the act of pulling up on the collective lever and thereby producing thrust, um, you are producing an action which then has an equal and opposite reaction. So if your blades are spinning counterclockwise as Western helicopters do, uh, the nose of the helicopter will want to have an opposite reaction by turning to the right. Hmm. So the way you prevent that is by having a counter torque system and there's various applications of this. It could be uh, a traditional tail rotor. It could be a fenestron. It could be a no-tar system or no-tail rotor system with blown air, etc. Various technological solutions to this. But the bottom line is you have to counteract the torque reaction created through the production of lift with another production of lift, which is generally perpendicular to the plane of main rotor lift, which we'll call the tail rotor. So that's what your pedals do. So when you pull up on that collective, and we'll use Western helicopters as an example, the nose is going to want to tend to turn right. So you have to press left pedal to apply an equal and opposite counter torque reaction to keep the nose oriented where you want to orient it. So this is where helicopters become a little more wonky than flying fixed wing. Um, so for everything you do, and we tend to talk about helicopters in a theoretical perfect system, right? So let's assume no wind, um, no friction losses, none of the things that we have to worry about in real life. So when we talk about pulling up on that collective, uh, we're assuming a, a zero, perfectly zero wind condition. You go straight up. Well, you have to produce just as much anti-torque rotation as there is torque rotation due to the production of lift. And that's what the tail rotor does. All right, so let's build a picture for someone who's never been in a helicopter. So 
we'll kind of review the bidding right here. So we're sitting in the seat. We've got our left hand on the collective. So we're raising that up, which is increasing the pitch of all four, three, two, however many blades you have overhead. Um, we're increasing the pitch of collectively of those blades, which is then going to cause lift, which is also going to cause torque. So the blades are turning left means the nose is one going to want to turn right. So now we've got to apply pedal to essentially change the pitch collectively of the tail rotor pedals in the in the case that we're flying something that has a, a tail rotor, not a notar like you, you mentioned. Okay, so that's two things that we're trying to do that are a little bit wonky to, to do just, you know, uh, for the average person. And then what else do we got to do? Well, then you have to maintain a position over the ground. So in a theoretically perfect system, uh, I suppose when you pull straight up on that collective, you would want to come straight up, but uh, helicopters don't work that way. So when you start producing anti-torque with that perpendicular mounted tail rotor, well, that thing is producing thrust in a horizontal direction, right? So now you have a thrust moment acting uh, to push the helicopter, not only rotationally around the mast, but now you're producing a component of lift that wants to make it go opposite to the direction of thrust you're creating. So it's going to want to tend to drift in the direction of thrust that it's creating. Hmm. So then we have to apply some countering directional control, which is the cyclic. So that is the stick between your legs. And what the cyclic does is it cyclically or cyclically changes the pitch in individual blades through the entire rotation of the disc. So you should think of the disc as one big airfoil made up of four different components. So the rotor disc is considered one airfoil, but it's made up of three, two, three, four, however many rotor blades you have. And what the cyclic does is when you push forward left and right and back on it, um, so that's the directional movement control of the helicopter. So tying the anti-torque pedals together with the cyclic control between your legs, you now have to apply a little bit of directional cyclic to prevent the drift induced by the thrust produced by your anti-torque pedals. And so what's happening there is when you displace your cyclic control in any direction, the swashplate tilts. So from the non-rotating swash plate to the rotating swash plate, which is what's connected to the pitch change links, which is connected to the rotor blades themselves, um, each blade throughout the rotation continuously will constantly be increasing and decreasing in angle of incidence. And the angle of incidence is the mechanical angle um, of where the blade pitch is set. And so that produces a directional thrust. So you're increasing thrust on, let's call it one half of the rotor system to another half of the rotor system. And that imbalance in thrust then provides directional motion. And it's called cyclic or the cyclic because when you move that control, each blade continuously throughout its rotation is moving its angle or its pitch all the time as it rotates. Uh, from the least amount of pitch on the advancing half of the rotor blade to the most amount of pitch on the retreating half of the rotor blade. But since we're still at a hover, there is no advancing and retreating half. They're all equal. So we'll get into advancing 
and retreating halves of the rotor system <laughs> in a moment. Uh, but we have to talk about dissymmetry of lift as well. Yeah, this, this is hard to do without being able to use your hands, isn't it? Exactly. Well, I find myself sitting here. I am, in fact, talking with my hands. So if you were to have a camera on me, <laughs> I'm, yeah, talking with my hands. So let's try to, let's try to, as we go, we'll, we'll kind of help visualize for people because we're using a lot of, you know, technical terms and if somebody's not be able to follow. So, you know, you're talking about swash plates, rotating and non-rotating. So uh, uh, I guess a way to, a simple way to picture that is, of course, you've got the mast popping out of the top of the, the fuselage. And at some point, there's a junction, if you will, of uh, of plates, um, and the, the non-rotating swash plate has you know various things sticking out of it back to the fuselage. But then the rotating swash plate is that plate right above it that is going to be spinning, and that's where those those pitch change tubes that you talked about are going to be sticking out, and they're going to lead off to the blades, and they're going to help change the pitch. And so, um, so those are the swash plates. And the way I, you know, it's always drawn this way, of course, and I always still, even when I was flying all the time, I still pictured a little arrow sticking out of the top of my aircraft. And that was, you know, my lift vector. And I always was thinking about it and, and where where is that arrow pointing right now based on, you know, when I'm hovering, based on where I'm moving the cyclic. Um, and just like you said, that that is how you essentially maintain your position or change your position while you're at a hover. So let's talk about that. Let's you, you kind of started to get into it, but how do we maintain our position, hover, and, and just kind of go from there? Yeah. Okay. So looking at once again in a perfect system, if we want to from the ground pick up to a a stabilized hover with with no movement in a theoretically perfect system, we would pull straight up on the collective and add exactly the same amount of counter torque with left pedal and we would pick up to a hover. Once we want to think about transitioning to forward flight, we have to make a directional control in the cyclic. So uh, taking no other considerations into account, let's just say theoretically, we want to move forward, we press to the 12 o'clock position on the cyclic. And this is theoretical only because in real world, this is it's not going to be exactly like the way I describe it, but for, for building the, the word picture, we press forward on the cyclic, and the cyclic pitch of the blades changes so that the blades have the least amount of pitch at the 3 o'clock position and the most amount of pitch at the 9 o'clock position, and then due to something called gyroscopic precession, which causes all inputs to occur or to result 90 degrees from where they are input into the rotating system, um, that thrust will be most at the six o'clock position and least at the 12 o'clock position. And consequently, you will translate into forward flight. And then there's a bunch of stuff happening too, moving from airflow from a hover to airflow to forward flight and we have things called effective translational lift and translate well uh, transverse flow uh, so all of which we can talk about as well but I think the the concept to understand is that what you're doing is changing the pitch throughout your rotor system so if you view it as a collective system you're changing the pitch of the blades in each quadrant of that disc to produce thrust opposite the direction that you want to go. So most thrust 
opposite where you want to go to get you moving in the direction you do want to go. Right. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I've talked to, you know, fighter pilots in the past and, and they typically ask me when they have a question, they, they ask, you know, well, what is, what is the horsepower of your engines or what is the RPM of the rotor? And ask these technical questions that quite frankly, I don't ever really know the answer to because I don't care. Like we don't think about those things as much as we think about all the things that you're talking about right now. Um, and I think as I hear you talk about it, and again, it is challenging to not talk about it without using your hands or drawing a picture, which we're very much want to do in, in flight school or if we were sitting down doing a, a check ride or something. Um, you can start to understand why we don't focus on some of those things because they're they're not necessarily relevant to us. Um, you know, when you get in the aircraft the and, and you're getting ready to take off, I mean, you've got throttle full open, you know, the, the, the governor, the HMU, whatever you've got, whatever you're using, the FADEC is controlling all that fuel flow for you. You're not thinking about necessarily horsepower at this point. You're really just thinking about all of these aerodynamic factors that are affecting the aircraft and not, you know, you're not focused on, well, what side of my aircraft is the most pitch, you know, because the, the rigging of the system is, is sort of taking care of that for you. You know that if you want to go forward, you move the cyclic forward and, and you know, the magic happens above you. Um, but I never really thought about those terms until I kind of listened to you talk about it. That, that that's, our, that's our RPM and our horsepower conversation. Yeah. Um, ultimately, you know, th it's good to understand these principles, but to be an operator, is it necessary? I would argue, no, it's not. Um, yeah. There's there's certain things that are, I think, key to kind of internalize and understand, which is principles like effective translational lift hmm. and translating tendency and transverse flow, because those you have direct interaction with as you're actually flying the helicopter. So if you can anticipate where ETL happens, and why you are tending to drift to the right and why the nose pitches up. It's good to understand why those things are happening. Um, but for the things like, uh, do, do you care where the where the blade pitch is most and where it's least? Um, you know, those are just things that are happening. Mm -hmm. um, so it's for, it's taught in flight school and it's, it, you know, aerodynamics is fundamental to being an aviator. Like you, you understand how it all works, but does it, uh, does it change anything in actually wiggling the sticks? Like, does knowing that actually cause you to operate the aircraft any better? I would argue no. Um, other than if you can apply the principles like ETL transverse flow and uh, translating tendency and, and knowing why things happen so that you can anticipate them. Yeah. Um, RPM? Like who cares? Like you said, it's it's <laughs> Fast the governor enough. is built. Yeah, like the governor is built in such a way that um, well, so here's something that people might actually not realize or understand is the rotor doesn't slow down or speed up. So if you're used to flying a DCS uh, fixed wing or a fighter and you're constantly moving the throttle, you are changing the thrust in that system hmm. by changing RPMs in the in, in the turbine section, basically, adding more or less fuel manually to get the thrust that you want. That's not a thing in helicopters. The RPMs are the same. So it is the job of the computers or back in the olden days, uh, the analog governors, or even before that, the human had to do it where he had to match the 
fuel flow by twisting the throttle to the power requirement at the moment. We don't do it that way anymore. The RPMs are 397, and that's what that's 100% RPM. If it varies, if it goes above that or below that, your lift efficiency starts to change because lift is very, very dependent on velocity. So when you change the rotor RPMs, things start to degrade quickly when you're off of the design optimal for for that airfoil design. Um, that's why it's critical you don't go typically below about 90%. Uh, NR or above 105, 107% because your lift efficiency really starts to fall off rapidly if you go outside of those parameters. So that's that's generally the safety margin. Um, but yeah, do you think about that when you're flying? No, you just sort of move the controls to get what you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you said NR that being you know the the rotor essentially percentage so you know in our 100% that is 100% of what the rotor is supposed to be doing and, and exactly right and we can get into that what, what's going to change the rotor but but exactly right if we're going to 100% rpm which is what we're going to do to take off you know everyone does that check okay i'm at 100% rpm uh and then we're going to we're going to change the dynamics of the rotor system and and that's where the the governor, the FADEC, whatever system is being used, or even if it is your hand, if you're doing analog, that's where that tweaking is going to happen. It's going to happen in the engine because just like my analogy before of standing in a pool, if you rotate your hand in the water and try to spin at the same speed you were, you, you can probably do it, but you're going to need more energy to do it. You're going to expend more energy to keep your hand at that rate. And that's essentially what's happening is you're your RPM is set where it needs to be. It's the engine that you're adjusting to maintain that RPM. Yeah. So by pulling on the collective, you are increasing drag. Hmm. So drag generally, functionally, always increases as thrust increases. So by increasing drag, something has to be added, which in our case, it's turning uh, dinosaur juice into noise. Um <laughs> And the, it's the function of the governor or the fuel controller or whatever to meet the power demand by changing the fuel flow so that the engine is matched to the power demand in that moment. Right. And that's what computerized or full authority digital electronic control systems are particularly good at, is they can even anticipate based on how fast you're pulling the collective, um, they can look at the rate of change and preemptively or predictively schedule fuel to meet the demand in the next few microseconds so that it's not always reacting it's actually uh i don't know what the word is pre-acting right um it's anticipating whereas, yeah uh so for folks that fly the the hip ndcs or the uh one where if you go into an aggressive train flight decel and you don't start um adding collective soon enough and you demand that rapid change all at the end when you're about to rapidly transition from a decelerative attitude to a level attitude if you try to pull that collective all at once the analog governing system just can't read fast enough and schedule the fuel to get the engine spun up to meet the impending demand and that's why you droop and that's what happens when when fuel flow doesn't match power demand the rotor slows down and that's called an NR droop or rotor droop. If you got enough airspace or air, uh, if you got enough altitude, 
it can recover unless you droop it to a catastrophic level where you start over torquing things um, based on the engine trying to recover. And yeah, if you let it go too far and basically you flew that approach in such a manner that the engine, the helicopter just can't keep up with what you're doing with it, uh, you're going to put yourself in a bad situation. Okay, so talking about hovering, let's just kind of, again, recage where we're at. So we've changed collectively the pitch of all the blades. We've brought the aircraft up to a hover by applying the appropriate amount of pedal input to cause the anti-torque uh, to, to fight the torque of the collective change. Now we're using the cyclic to basically make very minor adjustments um, to pitch within the blades, but the blade disc itself is going to change uh, direction. So again, if you're picturing the aircraft with a, an arrow pointing out of the top of it, that is your lift vector, uh, now we're going to start moving in a direction. So uh, it's interesting how many people ask too, you know, throughout my time flying is, you know, how does a helicopter fly? Well, and the answer is always kind of, it depends, right? So if you're hovering, it flies very differently than if you're in forward flight. So if we're hovering, we're pointing in one direction and we want to slide to the left or slide to the right, uh, all we're doing is is making really minor changes to that cyclic, but we're changing the vector of that lift component, which in effect becomes uh, not just lift but thrust in a certain direction, and we're going to slide towards that direction. Uh, but now, as you said, we're going to take off. Um, we're going to push the cyclic forward. Probably doesn't take that much. We're going to let that airspeed build up, so lift and and thrust are sort of uh, sort of working together. Uh, drag, of course, is going to increase. And then we're going to pass through ETL, which you talked about briefly. Let's talk about that. Well, let, before we go on, okay. let's talk about two other things real quick sure. at a hover. So we got to talk about uh, in-ground effect and out-of-ground effect. Mm. Um, so in-ground effect hover is where the rotor system... So if you're close enough to the ground where the thrust produced by the main rotor hits the ground and basically creates kind of a pillow. So there's there's an overpressurization of the air mass that's directly underneath the helicopter, which is being moved by the rotor system. And so in-ground effect is, is a more efficient hover because you are getting some blowback, so to speak, or some cushion effect of the, the air mass that were moved by the main rotor as it impacts the ground. There's, there's a pillow there, basically. Uh, and then talk about outer ground effect hover where there's a point or an altitude where if you come straight up um, the air mass that's moved by the rotor system no longer hits the ground in time to affect the hmm. the efficiency of the rotor system basically so OGE hover versus IG hover OGE takes far more power to maintain a stabilized hover in out of ground effect versus in ground effect and that generally happens so the the common i guess usage of oge versus ige is um one and a quarter rotor discs so take the diameter of your rotor disc and then add a quarter to it and that's about where you enter the oge zone and all you're doing is relying on engine power at that point where if you're in an oge hover it is just the amount of air that you're blowing through that big fan that's keeping you from descending. If you descend a little bit more, you start getting a little bit of that rebound effect where that air mass hits the ground, and then you can kind of cushion on it. So your power requirement 
starts to go way down once you get into ground effect. And that happens at about, uh, OGE is considered one rotor diameter, add another quarter to consider yourself completely out of IGE. And, and OGE is basically the scariest environment imaginable as far as energy needs. That is the condition where you're going to need more power than any other condition for the most part. Yeah. And, and when you, you think about scariest place to be, you are 100% reliant on that engine functioning to mm. keep you from coming out of the sky. You have, so it's, it's all potential at that point. There is no kinetic energy to trade. You have zero airspeed. So if you are at an, a stabilized OGE hover and your engine quits, most likely you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're definitely going to ball it up. That's true. Yeah. Um, depending on... Depending on if you only have one engine versus dual engine, you know, we start to get into um, permutations of this. But if you're at 50 feet and your engine quits and you are at 90-something percent power applied to the system, that amount of drag will slow your rotor so quickly that you will it will, it will hit 85 to 80 to 75 percent in less, in less than a second and a half. And at that point, it's no longer even producing lift. So then you're just falling. Yeah, because because of the lift equation, you no longer have velocity in rotating airfoils to produce lift. So then you just come out of the sky. So OGE hover is probably the most. Yeah, it is the most demanding flight regime that that you can be in. And essentially, what you're saying is, it's probably better to be at an OGE hover at 300 feet than it is at 50 feet, because at least at 300 feet. I have the ability to to create Maybe some energy. Some airspeed back. Right, yeah. I can I can nose it over. I can get some airspeed, um, and 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 turn that kinetic energy into potential energy and trade it at the at the bottom. But at at 50, 60, 70 feet, there's just no time to react. Uh, well, there's limited time to react. You know, and, and yeah. again, like you said, it kind of depends. You know, we practice those things, but you also know it's coming. So. <laughs> Well, and we never, ever practice hovering autos at basically higher yeah. than five feet or so. Right, yeah. Because, like you said, at, at a relatively low altitude. So then we, we start talking about auto rotation. So in order to recapture any RPMs through the auto rotational airflow, you have to have enough time to lower the collective and allow the rotor blade to spin back up. So at 50 feet, there's there's not even time to get the collective down, and second of all, there's no forward airflow to get that that upflow through the rotor system to start spinning the rotor back where you have auto rotational right. RPMs. At 300 feet, maybe, yeah. Well, we'll get into autos here in a little yeah. bit. Uh, we're gonna get ahead of ourselves because we haven't even about. taken off yet. So I know. <laughs> so this is that, a long check ride. Yeah, I, it really is. I'm I'm sweating over here. Um, but yeah, so to kind of go back to that exactly, so we're going to take off, we're transitioning into effective transitional lift, and this is a point where the aircraft is is doing exactly that. It's transitioning from one stage, if you will, into another, because now the aerodynamic forces acting upon the, the rotor disc, the tail rotor, the aircraft in general are changing because, you know, as you pointed out, we're in ground effect or even out of ground effect. The, the, the airflow through the rotor system and around the aircraft is um, is turbulent, it's static, 
uh, now we're 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 essentially bursting through that uh, uh, that wall, if you will, and we're entering a whole different dimension of airflow. So how how does that affect the aircraft? Yeah, ETL or effective translational lift refers to when you outrun your own dirty air, basically. So it's called effective lift because you're you're gaining efficiencies. So you're you're moving from a pure hover regime to now a forward air flight regime. And the rotor is no longer working on re-ingested air. As you transition from zero to five to eight to 10, the tip of the rotor or the, the leading edge of the rotor starts to work on clean air. And as you get faster, that clean air starts to migrate backwards through the entire rotor system. Eventually you're working on nothing but clean air. In other words, as the, as the rotor spins, um, you're moving fast enough that it's never acting on the same chunk of air, if you can visualize that, as it goes through the rotation. So you're gaining efficiency. And efficiency is all about the, the speed of the air moving over the airfoil surfaces. So it's more efficient to be moving forward or in any direction. So forward is arbitrary to a helicopter. It could be left, right, or backwards. The, the disc doesn't care. Right. Um, that's where you just get more efficient because you're no longer working on, you're working on undisturbed air, I'll put it that way. Right, I mean, to your point, basically the only matter uh, to the aircraft if you're going left, right, or forward, it, it, like you said, it has nothing to do with the rotor disc, it's really the, the frame of the air, the aircraft itself at that point. You know, Obviously, if you go sideways, the, the drag, but to the yeah. rotor, you can go any direction. I always thought ETL was really interesting um, because it it highlights all of the different aerodynamic effects on on the rotor in a different way on the fuselage like there's all these sensations that are happening to you when you pass through it and it's not you know it's not a violent thing but uh, you know the first couple times you do it you can definitely tell it's happening and then as you alluded to earlier you know it's something that it, as you gain more experience it's something that you look for and it's something that helps you understand I'm going to make this takeoff or I don't have enough space or I don't have enough power. You know, it's, it's something that indicates. So let's talk about that. Like when we're actually passing through ETL, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Let, let's presume that at a stabilized three foot hover, theoretically our cyclic is, we'll call it in the center. Okay. Um, so to start moving forward, you have to move that cyclic or displace that cyclic forward. As you start to transition forward, you start to outrun your own disturbed air. So as you get more efficient, the leading half of the rotor system becomes more efficient before the trailing half of the rotor system. So that means you start to generate more lift at the front half of the rotor before the back half of the rotor. So that how that manifests is the nose of the helicopter will tend to want to rise because you just got more free lift because you're working on undisturbed air on the leading edge. So what the pilot then has to do to counteract that uh, that nose rise tendency, well, and then we have to add gyroscopic precession. So when that manifests is actually 90 degrees later, I started going to transverse flow and blowback there. <laughs> so I'm confusing two things. But the efficiency gained by ETL is the front half of the rotor system gets more efficient. That occurs 90 degrees later due to gyroscopic precession. So the effect of ETL that is felt by the pilot in a Western helicopter is that the left side of the helicopter will want to rise and the right side of the helicopter will want to 
well, it appears that you're wanting to turn left. So you have to add left cyclic. While that's occurring, there's this phenomenon called transverse flow, where the manifestation of that is called blowback, where the nose of the helicopter will want to rise. So, um, and, th and that's due to a phenomenon called dissymmetry of lift. So transitioning from the hover regime to the forward flight regime, now you have to think about the airspeed differences between the, call it the advancing side of the rotor system and the retreating side of the rotor system. So if you imagine that disc moving in, if you're looking at it from above mm -hmm. and you assign the 12 o'clock position as the forward mode of flight, if you divide that disc into four quadrants, uh, 12, 9, 6, and 3 o'clock, from the 12 o'clock position to the 6 o'clock position, in a counterclockwise rotating rotor, uh, the right side would be the advancing half of the rotor blade, and the left side would be the retreating side of the rotor system. So the advancing system is, the, practically speaking, when you add your forward airspeed, is getting faster and faster, versus the retreating side is getting slower and slower relative to the movement. Boy, this is going this is tough to explain <laughs> just in words. <laughs> well, let's break so it down. So let's let's kind of just Barney style it. So essentially what you're saying is if if my rotor system is moving as I'm looking at it from right to left, right? If I'm sitting in a cockpit, it's coming out the right side of my vision, it's swinging around in front of me and it's coming around to the left. The advancing yep. blade is on the right side, and that's just what we'll use for the example. Essentially, if I'm if if, if it's moving a hundred miles an hour, just to pick a number, it's moving a hundred miles an hour. We are moving forward at ten knots, twenty knots. That advancing blade is now actually moving a hundred and twenty knots. Versus when it's on the left side of my vision, it's going away from the advance, so it is retreating. It is now moving at eighty knots. And so like you said, right there, we talked about earlier, that's how we create lift is by pushing the blade through the air uh, around the central axis. So at this point, everything on the right side is creating more lift than everything on the left side, but that gyroscopic precession is causing that to not come into effect 90, until 90 degrees later. So our advancing blade now swings around to the front of the nose. It's going to create more lift the uh, retreating blade is now moved around over the tail and it's creating less lift. And that manifests how? Well, that's going to cause your nose to rise up. Okay. And that's what we call yeah. transverse flow or that's blowback. So the, the pilot to counteract that nose rising tendency has to add logically forward cyclic mm -hmm. to counteract the uh, the nose wanting to come up due to increased efficiency. So when you put ETL and transverse flow or blowback together, what happens as the pilot transitions from a stabilized hover into forward flight and to then truly outrunning both transverse flow and ETL and now is in the, in the forward flight regime, that control motion is a left and forward cyclic displacement. Right, so, so because you, we've essentially yeah. we've caused the aircraft to roll, as you mentioned, because of the the forward the forward half of the rotor system is in a clean, undisturbed air. The rear half is not, so that's going to manifest 90 degrees later. It's going to cause the aircraft to roll. Uh, the advancing blade is going to create more lift than the retreating blade. That's going to cause the nose to rise. So the aircraft is rolling, is rising, and we're not even done yet because there's still another effect that's going to happen while we're passing through ETL. 
All right, yeah. So as we're transitioning forward, the tail rotor is is experiencing all these same effects as well. They're just happen to be in the perpendicular plane to the main rotor. But as we transition forward, the tail rotor is also experiencing transverse flow and uh, dissymmetry of lift and uh, ETL. So as you are moving the cyclic left and forward, and as I'm sitting here looking at my fist and visualizing what's happening, it's it's almost a U shape that starts from the center position and you go left and forward and draw sort of this, like a, a U shape and you end up close to the center, but far forward of where you were in the centered position. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, uh, you are progressively reducing left pedal or adding right pedal um, to as you get more efficient, the tail rotor is getting more efficient too. So you don't need as much anti-torque because uh, you're not using as much power to maintain the same altitude. So not only are you doing all those things with the cyclic, but as you transition through ETL, you can, guess what, start reducing your collective because you just got more efficient and gained some free power or less power demand. So you can reduce the collective and thereby you have to put the if you want to maintain the same heading, you have to reduce your anti-torque by the same amount. So you are actually adding right pedal or more correctly, reducing your left pedal mm -hmm. um, to maintain the same heading. So right. all those things are happening at the same time. And it's harder to talk about it, actually, than it is to do once <laughs> once your body figures it out. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it happens, happens in a split second, yeah. you know, essentially. Right. It's, it's a matter of a couple seconds, and it's taken us 10 minutes to, to describe it, but... But, it, you know, it, it is all those motions happening to you at once. You, you feel the roll. You feel the nose blow back. You feel uh, the, the yaw of the aircraft that you've got to counter. And, and all these things are happening while at the same time you're trying to maintain your lane alignment because you don't want to you don't want to allow that yaw to change. Um, because just like you said, you know, we always prepare for the engine to quit, you know, just go back to that quote at the beginning of the episode of, you know, if it hasn't happened yet, we're expecting it to any moment. Now the engine's going to quit. I don't want the nose to be facing 10 degrees off from my, my velocity, you know, from my vector, because I can recover if my nose is, is pointing straight along the, the, the lane alignment and I lose the engine. I can probably grease it on because I'm I'm pretty low and I've got some some energy stored up. But if it's 10, 20 degrees off, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the ground and I'm just gonna flip over. Um, yeah. So you're so you're challenged yourself that you've got to maintain that lane alignment. And I think 50 feet was always kind of the magic number of you want to maintain. Doesn't matter what the aircraft wants to do. Um, you know, you want to maintain that lane alignment for the first 50 feet, and then you want to get it in trim, which is another weird thing with aircraft, and, and particularly with helicopters, is, you know, once you get up into uh, above that 50 feet margin and you get the aircraft in trim, the nose probably won't be pointing directly where you're going. Yeah, and that that's the hardest thing for the up-and-coming pilot is to really grasp is, number one, they don't feel what is out of trim and what is in trim, so they're kind of they got to look at that trim ball or that turn and slip indicator and then artificially sort of react to whatever it's doing. Um, so in trim, meaning that basically you're in a perfect system with no winds, uh, in trim means that your nose is directly aerodynamically in front of your tail. 
if you add a crosswind component as you would in real life, then you start having to think about, uh, like let's say you have a 20 knot right quartering headwind. So in trim probably means you're flying somewhat sideways or crabbing because aerodynamically you would want your your airplane to be pointed into the relative wind. So that's what a lot of folks struggle with. Well, I think in a lot of ways too, you and I, you know, and guys like us were spoiled because in the 58, when you didn't have doors on, you knew when you were out of trim because the air was blowing <laughs> yeah. in through the open door. Because I had the same problem when I started flying Apaches is I, I would be out of trim and not know it. And if, in Apache, you didn't really care. Like it, it you know, it muscle its way through it. But in a, in a 58, if you were out of trim, you know, that that's affecting you. That's going to cause the aircraft to to be a little cockeyed. You're going to know that, you know, you're just kind of sitting there a little bit sideways. Um, you're going to lose efficiency for airspeed, things like that. But, but yeah, uh, and, and let's yeah. put it in terms that our, our DCS audience cares about. Um, and I don't know whether this is accurately modeled in DCS or not, but if you are out of trim and trying to shoot rockets uh, you, or employ any sort of aerial delivered weapon, bombs, anything, if you are maintaining a certain ground track and you are out of trim to that, well, you can be out of trim to a ground track uh, but your weapons aren't going to go where your nose is pointing. Um, so if you're aerodynamically in trim, like if you're fighting a strong crosswind and you're aerodynamically in trim, you may be flying at a 15 degree, mm. uh, what do you call it, out, out of, you're, you're not pointed at your target. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're, you, I mean, you're, you're going to have the cyclic not pointing forward, but it's going to be pointing, you know, at your one o'clock or your 11 o'clock position and and I mean I I remember certain flights where I'm I'm practically looking over the left seater's you know dashboard because that's the direction that I'm flying and that's where I'm looking. But if I were to look straight ahead of me as I sit, I'm looking well off to the right of my course. Um, yeah. But the aircraft and in that, trim. And that makes shooting rockets particularly hard in a in a crosswind condition because you want to be in trim. But you have to get out of trim in many cases to point at your target. But what's going to happen then is you got this wonky crosswind component that's coming across your helicopter, your aircraft, or whatever. And the instant the rocket comes out of the tube and those fins deploy, just like a dart, the the crosswind will affect how that rocket is pushed. So what tends to happen is um, if you are, let's say, there's a crosswind coming from from the right and you shoot a rocket at a target and you have a strong crosswind coming from the right the rocket will seek that relative wind and it's going to go to the right so it's it's not an easy computational task to try and figure out right sometimes where where your munitions are going to go based on on crosswinds yeah yeah so we'll we'll definitely get into ballistics uh sometime yeah. in the future and that's we'll a whole nother podcast oh yeah that's that's at least another episode <laughs> right there yeah. um okay so We've probably confused everyone with everything that's happened so far, uh, but I, I would argue that the hardest part of things is over, right? So picking up to a hover, you know, guys learn how to hover after they learn how to auto-rotate in flight school. At least when I went through, that's the way it was, because hovering was, without a doubt, the hardest thing to do and the hardest thing to learn how to do in the aircraft. And, yeah, so there's... Over the last 70 years, as as we here at Fort Rucker have learned how to do flight training, it's a it's a kind of commonly known as the the five hour button. Mm -hmm. 
or the hover button. Like at around five to six, maybe eight hours, uh, magically your body figures it out. Before that, um, flying a helicopter seems very unnatural. And what kills most people is their bodies are so tense uh, because you don't understand what's happening and you don't feel it. Your fists are tight, your legs are tight, your toes are tight. And when you're tight, uh, we should say that controlling a helicopter takes very, very little actual motions of your body. And when you're tight, it's harder to make those fine, minute adjustments. Yeah. And everybody is usually just kind of, they're sore after their first hour of flying because, uh, number one, they're scared and they have never done it before and they can't make the thing do what they want. And then, yeah, after, you know, three, four or five flights of about an hour, hour and a half each, just like riding a bike, all of a sudden there's something that happens in your brain and you go, oh, I get it. And then it becomes a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah, I wore a, a one of those watches that would keep track of your your steps and your heart rate and stuff. And I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was wearing it while I was on a flight, a, a night flight, you know. And I had you know, two thousand hours or whatever, uh, been been doing it for a while. And I went back and looked at the data from that, you know, after like a three hour flight in an Apache, and I correlated the times with my takeoff time, and you could see this huge spike in my heart rate around the exact same time that I would have been taxiing out, hovering, doing, you know, power checks and, and doing all the things prior to takeoff. And then once, yeah. you know, once you take off, your your heart goes back to normal and, and right. it's fine. Um, but yeah, so I, I can't find the source, but this was 20 something years ago. But there's some correlation. Somebody did a study that the amount of brain processing that's happening to a pilot as he's trying to navigate an instrument approach procedure mm. is correlates to what a neurosurgeon is doing during a procedure. So there's as much, wow. they have to process as much information uh, during an instrument approach as a surgeon is doing when he's doing his thing. Yeah, I but I, I don't know where that, that article is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to find that so we can show it to our doctor friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're going to ground me? Screw yeah. you. <laughs> so forward flight, and this is where I think also kind of confounds people is uh, the helicopter is a very different animal in forward flight so now we've we've increased we've gone through etl we've transitioned we're you know we're 40 50 60 knots at this point aircrafts and trim now when i move the cyclic i don't slide uh to the right or left but i actually bank and, and turn yeah how to explain that one <laughs> so so beyond etl uh and it's it's not a it's not like there's a hard number it's not your your prior to ETL at 20 knots and you're beyond ETL or out of ETL at right. 21 knots. It's it's a progressive and gradual um, process. But beyond 24 knots or so, you are in forward flight. Below 24 knots, down to about 14 knots, you're you're in that medium ground where you're somewhere between hovering and flying. And below 14 knots or so, you're in the hover regime. Um, but when you're in forward flight, when you move the cyclic, it's more like the ailerons on an airplane. So when you move the cyclic to the right, you bank right. And then you got to do the same thing with, you got to keep it in trim. So a little bit of pedal input. Uh, and then if you do anything with the collective, so cyclic movements don't necessarily change your power. Mm. Although this isn't, we're not going to get into transient torque and anything like that today, but um, 
collective movements in forward flight change the amount of power in the system or how much thrust you're producing. So instead of when you're in forward flight, collective makes you go up and down, yes. So anytime you move the collective, let's say we add power or pull the collective up, if I don't do anything with my cyclic, I start to get an upward component to my flight path. I will stay at the same speed, but I will start to increase in altitude. If I want to maintain the same altitude, I now have to press forward on the cyclic because I just added more thrust. So if I want to stay at the same altitude, I have to change something, which is move my cyclic forward. So more thrust means either more altitude or more speed. So if I want to keep the same altitude, I'm going to end up going faster. If I'm going to keep the same speed, I'm going to end up going up. So altitude generally, so collective is thrust. Unlike in an airplane where you want to slow down, you pull back on your thrust lever and you don't change the attitude of the airplane, you will slow down. Mm -hmm. um, so pitch in a helicopter, pitch or attitude is airspeed. Um, I guess it is in an airplane too, but you have to you have to match it with power. Yeah, it's a different type. You know, it's a different yeah. relationship between the power and the pitch, and, and that certainly comes into play on landing, and and we can talk about that. Sure. But but you you also mentioned as we travel through these different regimes of airspeed. So we've we've passed through ETL, and we're getting to a point. It's not just about the rotor as well, but it's it's also the the fuselage of the aircraft starts to gain some efficiencies as well, right? So uh, the vertical fin, the vertical stabilizer, the the, the, the horizontal stabilizers or the, the stabilator, depending on the type of aircraft that you have, you know, if you're just sitting still, those things don't do really anything, you know, they just look cool. But as you get that forward airspeed, well, they're going to start, you know, having uh, an aerodynamic effect and that's going to increase the stability. It's going to create a little bit of lift. It's going to do things for the aircraft, which is going to uh, support that rotor system. Yeah. So... You know, at a hover, let's say you have horizontal stabilizers or stabilators. Um, I'll use a, the Bell 206 or the 58D or whatever. It has those two wings on the tail boom. Um, just like any airfoil, they got to have some movement of air over them to start generating lift. So as you start getting faster, uh, and if you look closely at those, they are actually a wing that's turned upside down. So they're designed to produce lift in the op in the up direction basically so as you get faster they will tend to push keep the nose down and there's a design speed where they're they completely offload the control pressures that you need on your controls same thing with the tail rotor um, there's a vertical stabilizer on a lot of helicopters that is designed to completely offload the tail rotor demand at a certain airspeed could be 60 knots could be 80 knots whatever that is but if We'll call it cruise. So when you hit cruise, theoretically, um, the design of the helicopter uh, airfoil surfaces will allow you to basically have neutral pressures on your controls so that you can kind of, in a certain sense, take your hands off. You can't really, but um, you're almost at a neutral control pressure configuration. Let's call it 80 knots as cruise for the 50AD. Um, you're tail rotor is completely offloaded by the vertical fin and your attitude or your pitch attitude is kind of offloaded by the horizontal stabilizer stabilator and you're almost in a neutral power demand except for thrust so it's a it's it kind of likes to be there yeah so and and the, the, to your point as as far as thrust pitch 
in airspeed. Um, you know, for us, it kind of goes back to that that side, you know, that side profile picture of the aircraft. There's arrows, you know, pointing to the rear. That's drag. There's arrow pointing down. That's weight. There's pointing forward. That's thrust, and the pointing up. That's lift. But for the helicopter, you know, again, I I, I sort of picture the thrust and the lift really just being one arrow that's kind of pointing. Uh, out of the top, but it, then it's relation it, it, relational to what you're doing with the cyclic. So if I want to increase speed, I've got to move that arrow more forward. But when I trade it off to get airspeed, well now I'm losing that arrow pointing up, which means I'm losing lift because the weight hasn't changed. Um, yep. Some of the some of that again, like you just mentioned, is going to be offset by you know the aircraft and the, and the structure of it, but not enough to make a difference. So if I want to go faster, I push the cyclic forward, I push that nose down because really what I, it really has nothing to do with the nose. You know the nose is just the, the fuselage is just kind of reacting to what's happening to the rotor disc. You know it's yeah. kind of just almost hanging there underneath this rotor disc, which is kind of weird to think about, but but essentially that's what's happening because all you're really doing is you're flying that rotor disc and you're just going along for the ride. But I've changed that arrow to the more forward, which means I'm losing some of that arrow up. So now I've got to increase power to the collective to make that arrow essentially longer um, so that it still is going up as much as I need it to. Um, so I'm increasing the power demand to the to the aircraft. And then, like you said, that vertical fin is is above certain speeds. I, th I think in the 58, I think 40 knots was kind of the magic number. I know that's, you know, that was the number you wanted to stay above if you had a tail rotor issue. Yeah, that's a good one you brought up. I, I think 40 knots was when you went below that and you didn't have tail rotor authority, you'd start spinning. Yeah. So as long, as long as you could stay above 40 knots, that vertical fin could keep your nose pointed within 90 degrees of the direction you want to go. Right. But at least you're not spinning. Yeah. Yeah. Which goes back to exactly, if you've got a tail rotor problem, you need to get on the ground. You know, eventually you're going to have to land somewhere. You want to maintain lane alignment. So you, you want to keep that airspeed up. Um, I think in the Apache, it was like, you know, the book said something like you wanted to stay above a hundred knots or something. Yeah. You know, it, it was fast. You were cruising. Um, I know when I had a hydraulic failure and had a hard time keeping, you know, the, the, the aircraft aligned because the, the you know, it was so hard moving the pedals and stuff. You know, I, I definitely was well above 40 knots when I touched down, uh, which was not good for the skids, but that's okay. That's well, yeah, that's a long <laughs> ass slide. Oh yeah. We were, we were sliding. <laughs> we kept going. Um, yeah. but that's a whole different story. So, all right. Um, so you mentioned 58 cruise, 80 knots, you know, it, it depends on the airframe. What, why can't they go faster? Yeah. So that's, that's the eternal question. Like, right. 42. Um, <laughs> So there's there's some things that start to affect uh, – we already talked about it some in the hover regime um, – how fast a, hel a traditional helicopter can go. The biggest which is something called dissymmetry of lift and then retreating blade sp stall. So you were talking about this uh, at the beginning where the advancing half of the rotor system is – that the rotational speed – is added to the forward speed that you're going versus the retreating half or the, the half that's going away from the direction you're going um, is subtracted from the speed that you're moving forward. So at some point, um, their retreating blade stall is the speed at which the retreating half of the rotor system stalls due to 
it's moving backwards so fast relative to the speed that you're moving forward that the blade starts to stall. And this is bad because what's happening on the other side of the rotor system is it's it's getting crazy more efficient because it's moving twice as fast as the one that's going backwards. Now you have this gross imbalance of um, forces. And when your blade stalls, you have negative pressure areas and some, it may even get to the point where relative to the speed that you're moving forward. So if you think about if you twirl a string around your head, the rock at the end of the string is moving much, much faster than um, the portion of the string that's closest to your finger, right? That's mm -hmm. that's how centrifugal force works. So the inboard portion of that rotor probably, well, retreating blade stall always starts at the hub and begins to move outward. And at some point it becomes so bad that the stresses on the rotor can actually twist it and tear it apart because of the imbalances in lift. So that's what kind of prevents traditional helicopters from going any faster than they can. Um, I think the Brits had the uh, the British Enhanced Rotor Blade Program, the BURP program. They put those blades on the links, and that ended up being the fastest helicopter ever. Hmm. Uh, but those are expensive and kind of niche. So, and we're getting into new things like FEL that you have other things that can make helicopters go faster by avoiding retreating blade stall, but. I think that's what you were getting at is returning blade stall, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I think you know, people do ask, you know, how fast can you go? And you know, they're always they're always somewhat disappointed when I tell them that you know, well, in a 58 we went around 90 to 100 knots, and you know, and that that just doesn't sound fast, of course, if you're a, if you like jets and they're flying 450 knots and things like that. But I always told people yeah. speed is relative. You know, when you're when you're 10 feet off the treetops and you're going 90 knots, it feels much faster than right. you're going 500 knots at 10,000 feet. But And so, well, like in the case of the 58D in particular, we, we could only eke out, you know, 100, 105 knots because we were drag limited. Hmm. Certainly that wasn't retreating blade stall or V&E, right. right? We just couldn't go any faster because we were so heavy and yeah. had so much stuff strapped to the aircraft that it just wouldn't go any faster. Yeah. Um, the V&E and the 58D was uh, 125 knots above 4,500 pounds. Um, and as I understand it, that's not even V&E. That's more, that was had, that had to do with the, the structural capability of the of the windscreen so past 125 knots you start talking about that plexiglass warping and breaking that it really wasn't the wasn't the vne due to retreating blade stall i think that was up in the 150s 160s something like that hmm. air like airframe wise we just couldn't get there right um unless you nosed it over in a 30 degree dive and you know screamed out of the sky i know at 130 knots the windshield would not explode i did learn that so. Yeah, it's probably conservative. It's, yeah. it's a book. Number. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and engineers kind of come up with these things. And I'm oh my sure god, there's a I, little I shudder factor. to think you went 130 knots. Did you actually make it that fast? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, I was diving. I thought someone was shooting me. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I've, I've, <laughs> I ended up in the you know the 120s after after an engagement or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it's it's very noticeable. It's I'll uncomfortable. It yeah, it's not yeah. a not a good feeling, but uh, the trade off. Um. Yeah, so airspeed is really limited by by a lot of things, and that's really a, a good point. It's it's not just retreating blades ball, um, but but it could be structure of the aircraft. It could just flat out be the engine's not going to support what you need to do. 
um, which is uh, true across the board. Yeah, as a counterexample, if you remember the slicks that you flew uh, during the contact phase when you were transitioning into 58Ds, mm. coming back from the stage field, going back to Hanchi, you could easily get those things to 115 knots yeah. um, and still be at 85, 90% torque and still have more left. I mean, so those things were six, 700 pounds lighter. They didn't have the MMS on. They didn't have the weapons on, you know. And you just so, burned a bunch of gas, so. Yeah, you're light. And yeah. those things were super fun to fly. So the last aerodynamics, you know, there's there's a ton and we could, we could spend hours, but, uh, you know, I think we should wrap it up with, with one that, that you and I hear a lot about, uh, and, and that's the vortex ring state, uh, settling with power. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a pet peeve of mine, particularly <laughs> coming from the community that you and I come from, um, meaning the 58Ds. Uh, and keep in mind, this, this is one perspective on it, uh, and I've now come to understand that sort of the FAA maybe describes it differently than the Canadian Aviation Administration does and overseas in Europe, um, how they're teaching things. But so settling with power and vortex ring state. So we'll start with vortex ring state is is a phenomenon where you put the aircraft in a low forward airspeed, high descent angle um, condition where you are going slow enough that you're now no longer acting on we'll call it clean air and the rotor has an opportunity to re-ingest its own vortices so if you look this up on google um and they'll show you a head-on shot and we'll probably well this is podcast only right you're not going to have any yeah. graphics yeah. yeah so if you were to look at the helicopter from the front you could draw little swirlies at the blade tips and so as the, if you imagine the air being pushed down through the rotor um, in a hover, the, air, the airfoils will tend to re-ingest that same air over and over again. And eventually it just turns into a big circle where you're just, you're accelerating that air over and over again that it's just re-ingesting itself. And the more power you put into that system, you're just accelerating that air even more. So that's why it's called vortex ring state so you look at the vortices and they look like rings that are just being pulled into the rotor system they go down through they go around to the side and then they come back in from the top and no matter what you do with power at that point you're just re-ingesting that same air and just accelerating it more and more and you have to be in a very sp specific flight regime to be able to do this which is you got to be descending with very low to slow forward airspeed, and you got to have a certain amount of power to applied that you're you're using engine power to create those vortices. And if you use more engine power, you're just going to make the vortices worse. And so, what people tend to misperceive, uh, where they call where they are flying along and they're coming into a challenging LZ or they're up at high altitude or the conditions are just generally challenging. They'll come into an LZ and fail to take into account they have to be a little bit more conservative and they'll execute the approach and then find themselves in the last few seconds of that approach running out of power uh, because they're going a little bit more fast. Like they, you know, if they took off from a near sea level 
um, base field, and then they climbed up into the mountains and tried to do the same type of approach that they would do down at near sea level. Hmm. Um, they find themselves approaching that the ground in the LZ a little faster than they're comfortable with, and they're starting to run out of power. Uh, they're not in a ring te- in a ring state condition. They're just running out of engine power to be able to arrest their forward motion without dinking the skids on the ground or without, you know, having to do something that would cause them to either over torque, over temp, but they're not in an aerodynamic ring state condition. So that's, that's my pet peeve is, and and it's especially prevalent to single engine light aircraft guys who are, you know, we live on the margin basically. And I would argue the, the Huey guys too, where there's not a lot of excess power available in the D model Apache guys. Um, if you don't set your approach up right, if you come in downwind, if you are a little bit too fast and you're relying on that collective to get you out of trouble, well, you have a choice you can make at that point. You can either go into transient engine conditions and burn it up or over torque it or stress it structurally somehow in order to not hit the ground too fast, but you never put yourself, you never met the criteria to be actually re-ingesting your own vortices. So I just talked for a whole lot to kind of differentiate between one is in aerodynamic condition uh, and the other one is just kind of poor execution of regular conditions. Hmm. And what you actually run out of is the ability to save yourself with your engine power, but you're not in an aerodynamic condition where you're re-ingesting vortices which becomes very evident because there's lots, tons of vibration that happens in VRS. There's a rapid, probably nose yaws because your tail rotor is now being um, subjected to all those vortices that are coming off the, the main rotor. So vortex ring state isn't just this thing that you find yourself in. Like there's a lot of forewarning and it takes very specific conditions to get into it. Most of the time, what I would argue is guys just find themselves at the bottom of the approach, running out of ideas and power, um, but not in an aerodynamic condition that they can't do anything about. Right. So that, that kind of goes into the thing you hear about all the time in flight school and, and even after that is just stay ahead of the aircraft, right? Plan, yeah. plan what you're doing a few, you know, a few seconds ahead at least of, of okay, I'm landing, I need to start slowing down. And, um, you know, I, I think I think there's a level of patience that has to come with with really all flying, but but I think in particular with helicopters is um, you you just got to have a level of patience and understand that I'm gonna start slowing down earlier than I probably want to. You know, you, you watch Hollywood and you see these guys come flying in and they just you know yank the nose back and and just plant it down. And and certainly you can do that with the right aircraft, the right weight. Uh, the right experience, but generally speaking, that is not how helicopters are flown. It is it is a very measured, slow approach to a point um, to to prevent you from getting into that and and other situations. Yeah, there was we had a uh, in the uh, training channel uh, a few days ago. There was we were, we were discussing settling with power versus vortex ring state and the semantics of it just a little bit. And so just to touch on that, like. I was taught and grew up considering settling with power is just the layman's way of describing vortex ring state. Right. So they're they're two in the same thing. Um, what has come out recently, I think, is uh, in Europe and I think in Canada, they are 
using settling with power to describe a different thing, which is what I was talking about, where you are executing a poor approach and you just don't have enough, you have too much airspeed um, and you don't have enough collective to use without over-temping or over-torquing, but you're not in an aerodynamic condition of vortex ring state. So per the traditional, I guess, U.S. Army description, settling with power is just the layman's way of saying vortex ring state. You're settling, you have power applied, uh, and all you're doing is re-ingesting your, your vortices and nothing is happening. And the way to the way to get out of VRS or settling with power is just, provided you have enough altitude, is directional flight. So you push forward on the cyclic, you push right on the cyclic, left, whatever the case may be, and you can actually lower the collective if you have enough altitude to stop re-ingesting those vortices as aggressively and fly out of it. Right. So if you Google the, the Vouchard recovery technique, it's basically that. And you can, if you recognize it quickly enough, you can get out of VRS within 25 to 50 feet of descent without too much trouble. Yeah. I, I want to say very early on in my career, I, I got into it or started to get into uh, that state. And, and it was just a little bit of cyclic and we slid out of it. You know, we were at a, an OG hover, probably 80 feet or so. And we were observing a range. We were basically the greater aircraft and, and, uh, I was on the controls. I was a brand new guy, R01. And, uh, and, and, and I don't remember what exactly I did to cause it, but it, it was definitely noticeable enough that the other guy, you know, didn't take the controls, but said, Hey, do this real quick. You know, and we kind of got out of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I've always kind of, I guess, pictured it or been taught it maybe is, you know, vortex ring state is a state and settling with power is the physical manifestation of it happening in this certain situation, right? So because if yeah. you're at 5,000 feet and you get in vortex ring state, you know, you, you, you notice it, but you're probably not quote unquote settling with power because you've got so much space to, to be able to do something about it. But, but if you're at low level and you, and you crash because of it, or, or you're, you know, you're getting just close to the ground in an uncontrollable state, but, but, but what you're, I guess, saying, or, or at least alluding to is that they, they've got a completely different relationship. Like it is, it is not vortex ring state at all. It is just a condition you have probably put yourself in, which you can do with vortex ring state as well, but it's just completely devoid of that. Yeah, I, I, my contention is, or what I used to tell my guys is, look, you just put yourself in a position where the only options you have are to pull more collective to avoid hitting the ground too fast. And you can pull more collective and you might over temp or you might over torque due to limitations of the aircraft, but you never, you never got into vortex ring state. You still might have hit the ground because you drooped the rotor because you went into TGT limiting or you over-torqued it or whatever, but you never re-ingested your vortices. So had you had more, even more power, in other words, like let's say they had this theoretical magical engine where you could just pull the collective into infinity. If you could do that, you could have stopped that descent. You would not have been in a VRS condition. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that... Uh... Yeah, you know, so, it gets into semantics at some point. <laughs> yeah, I guess another way to put it is, it, unless you have the the slow forward airspeed with high descent angle, hmm. you will not get vortex ring state because if you're going just fast enough, 
you can't reingest your vortices. Hmm. And if you are going shallow enough, you can't reingest the vortices. So in other words, you have to have an your angle has to be high enough that the upflow of air is conducive to allowing your blades to reingest the vortices coming off the bottom. Right. So if you are shallow enough or if you are fast enough, you cannot create the condition to reingest your vortices no matter how much power you demand. Right. So that's how you stay out of vortex ring state is you do a shallow approach or you manage your airspeed so that you get into an in-ground effect condition at around the time that you want to be landing or at the airspeed that you want to be landing. All right, the last thing I want to talk about is uh, is landing, right? So because we've talked about some similarities or differences between how a rotor wing aircraft and a fixed wing aircraft. And I, I think... One of the the biggest uh, differences, you know, that you'll see is landing. When I, when I got my fixed wing license, this was the the number one thing that was the most challenging. You know, maintaining the aircraft level flight that's easy. Taking off in a fixed wing airplane is is incredibly easy. Uh, Dude, you have no idea how badly I wanted to bring that Cessna 150 to a hover over the threshold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's completely unnatural to us. Um, because you're in a nose down state, um, heading for the runway and, and you're not, you know, really changing the pitch to, you know, if you don't change the pitch, you're going to crash nose first in the, into the, into the ground. And so for a helicopter guy, that is completely alien because just like we said a few minutes ago, you want to get ahead of the aircraft. You want to start slowing down and slowing down for us is pulling that nose back. Really what it is again is, is pulling the, the rotor disc back, which is going to cause the nose to come back. The nose is just along for the ride. But you're going to start doing that, you know, potentially a mile out or, you know, whatever. It just kind of depends on the airspeed and the situation and all that stuff. But but the point is you are well away from touching down the ground when your nose is level to the horizon, uh, you know, somewhere in there versus that, you know, that first time I landed a, a Cessna 172, I felt like the nose was, you know, feet away from running into the ground before I'm pitching back to, to level off. Yeah. Um, the way... The way I taught guys to set up for, so like like you said, it's all about the setup. So coming off from the downwind and you're descending into base and then turning final, I always like to see them, uh, and the in the same way as in a in an aircraft where you're setting the attitude. So airspeed is all about attitude. In an airplane, you're setting your attitude to maintain your approach speed. Um, where you arrive over the numbers, you know, at around, within five or 10 knots of, of stall speed, right? Mm -hmm. So as you then cut the throttle and pull the, the stick back to settle and actually stall at the moment that you want to touch down in a helicopter, I want to be turning final or about quarter mile final. And I set my attitude, I call it a 40 knot attitude, mm -hmm. but you know, if you're if you're holding 60 knots as you turn to final, you can set that attitude way out at a quarter quarter mile, and it's a slightly decelerative attitude. So if you if you set your hover attitude when you're, um, let's say going 60 knots, you can ride that attitude from a quarter mile all the way to your hover point without ever changing your attitude again. Mm -hmm. And if if you're good at it. You can you won't have to do anything with the cyclic at all. You can manage that descent rate just with with power with collective. Right. 
kind of similar to how you would set up an approach in a in an airplane. I've only got a couple hours in a fixed wing, but what I would try to do is turn final and you know, I'd be carrying 80 knots turning final and I want to arrive at about 52 knots when I'm over the numbers, so I stall out right at the moment I want to. Um, you can set that attitude when you turn final and hold that attitude and hopefully if you're good, you don't have to do a whole lot of attitude changes. Um, so in a helicopter, it's just you you manage your descent. Well, you do it in an airplane too, so it's very similar that way. You manage it with power. Hmm. So any any change you make with the cyclic or with the stick in an airplane results in a pitch change, and that's an airspeed change. If you pitch up, you're going to slow down. If you pitch forward, you're going to get faster. So you can you can set one attitude and hold one pitch all the way on your approach and kind of manage your profile with power. And I, I'm sitting here in my chair, raising my left arm up and down, describing managing my power. <laughs> yeah. Um, can't talk without my hands. No, well, that's, that's how you know you're a pilot. Um, yeah, I, I think what I've noticed, and, and it could just be that I'm a garbage pilot, but you know, in a fixed wing, when I'm flying and coming into land, I'm not modulating my throttle really much at all um I'm, I'm controlling it with pitch whereas in a helicopter um i'm probably going to modulate my collective a, a lot more to maintain that because but i'm also not changing my pitch that much you know like you said i'm, I'm going to establish uh my good landing attitude uh for the most part and then it's it's controlling my descent uh you know my angle of descent with with modulating power so so yeah, I think there's a lot of differences there, and um, okay. but you know, like I said, I, I'm not a I'm not a great fixed wing pilot, but um, but I haven't crashed yet, so I got that going for me. Yeah. Well, like I said, I've just got a couple of fam hours, but yeah. th that's what I was trying to bring my rotary wing sight picture to that 150 yeah. that I was flying, and I was trying to set myself up on final at an airspeed that would slowly decay so that I, when I transitioned over the numbers, I would be at the proper airspeed to, uh, you know, roll the throttle back and then transition to the stall and touch down. Yeah. It's all about the timing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now that I think about it, this was a couple of years ago, and that maybe wasn't the correct way to think about it because if you arrive over the numbers at stall speed, you have nowhere to go but stall. Right. So... You, you actually want to arrive a little bit faster so that you can make some other decisions. So that's where my that's where my helicopter side picture and experience, I think, yeah, led me down the wrong path. Yeah, for sure. We we could we could go on, I'm sure, for another hour or two uh, talking about all this stuff. But um, I think we'll save some of that for probably a discussion in the future about emergency procedures. I, as we kind of talked about these things, you know, we kind of hinted at you know auto rotations and and hydraulic failures and things like that. And I think that could be an interesting discussion as well. But we'll save that for next time, and uh, I, I think we'll just wrap it up here. Yeah, and I'll just say, uh, you know, I'm sure there'll be some questions on the uh, on the that below the, the podcast posts. So by all means, or post them in the, in the training channel on a little hell. And, and there's tons of pilots that are more than happy to talk about that stuff. Yep. And, and as you uh, pointed out, and, and I think I pointed out as well, you know, we're not perfect in this, you know, there's one thing I've learned about being a pilot is there's always another pilot with a different opinion on the same subject. Yep. Um, and when you do get into these things that are, you know, that, that 
there's very few things that I think are 100% cut and dry when it comes to flying. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of conditions based, um, you know, that that's going to decide how things are. So um, by all means, we're not the authorities on the subject, but I think this is a good primer to, to start discussion with people. So, but I appreciate you taking the time to explain it because you're you're much more eloquent than I am on it, and uh, I think I'm better I at that. well, I'm better at taking what you say and dumbing it down. So, <laughs> so together we make a good team. Yeah. Once again, I find myself just going down the rabbit hole of over-explaining. Yeah. Well, that's where editing comes in. <laughs> so, yeah. but um. But no, this was good, and I appreciate you taking the time, and I appreciate all you people that are listening uh, for, for taking the time and listening to us ramble on, and hopefully we didn't uh, blow your minds too much with too many uh, crazy terms. But if you do have any questions, absolutely, if you're part of the Discord, put them in there. But if not, uh, send us an email at thelowlevelhellpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, all comments made by the guests and the crew are their own do not represent the Department of Defense or any private business. We appreciate you guys taking the time and listening, and we'll talk to you guys in two weeks. Take care.